Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. Yeah, are there any frequently asked questions that you feel like are really important and worth mentioning? There's a couple, maybe not questions, but just like important things to understand that I've, I've found people maybe wrestle with when trying to understand the way to caseload study. Beyond the Collabo Babble, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collabo Babble, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collabo Babble, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collabo Babble, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Jessica Brill, the manager of the data unit at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office in the Court Services Division. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office. Good morning, Jessica. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you for joining Beyond the Collabo Babble. Thank you. So I'd like to get started by asking the guests, what does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you? Yeah, so, um, you know, I kind of see it as just kind of cutting through all the fancy words and jargon and, you know, all the buzzwords that kind of um, find energy in our conversations and really just getting to the real stories about how people come together and get stuff done. So um, when I hear that, I just kind of think of that little less conversation, a little more action um, mantra and just kind of what's behind the curtain of all the fancy talk. You know, how does it all play out in real life and with real people? All right. Well, thank you. And so we're you're the data unit manager. I imagine there's a lot of jargon sometimes used in data, but you uh, I've noticed and I've watched you really do a great job over the years in meetings and other settings describing and explaining the data to different audiences of judges and court staff, district administrators. That's part of why I wanted to bring you onto the podcast today to just bring life to data in a way um, that people could better understand it. And one of the big topics um, that you work on is weighted caseload, which is critical to staffing levels here in the branch. But I don't know if everybody understands it. So today I was hoping we could get into talking about that on just a high level so people have a general understanding. How's that sound? For sure. That sounds great. And thanks for the compliment. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, first, can you give us a little background on how you became the data manager? What's your what's your career path? Yeah. So I had kind of a serendipitous path, I would say. I um, did go uh, right into graduate school, into a PhD program in St. Louis. Um, really enjoyed that. I'm a curious person. I like to learn. I like information, um, which is why I think data is such a great home for me is that I want to I want to know. I'm curious. I want the information. And so um, but academia was not really a good fit for who I am as a person. And so um, I did uh, after getting my master's come back to Colorado and kind of a natural um place to go from that point was um, into more of a clinical role or a practitioner role. So I was um, working in probation for um, a certain amount of time. Uh, I was working with um, Denver County Court Probation. So a lot of misdemeanor um, uh, population um, and really enjoyed that. I learned 
a tremendous amount. <laughs> I learned a lot about um, people during that time. And I think that um, might be kind of one of the things I would credit to being able to tell and talk about data um, in a really relatable way mm-hmm. is that I had to have a lot of conversations about um, a lot of different things with all different types of people. And so that was a great experience of just, you know, how do you make information that people need to understand accessible to them? Um, And so I think uh, that was an important piece of my career, but I was really ready to get back to um, the policy and the data work and um, had an opportunity to come on board with the state court administrator's office through um, a problem solving courts position. Um, And so I worked in that position for a couple years um, and then eventually made my way to um, my home, <laughs> the data unit, and um, have been here ever since and I'm, I'm loving it. And I work with a great team of people and um, not just in our own court services, but um, our organization more broadly. We've got some really bright minds. Um, so I think, you know, the future is really bright for us. But that was kind of my random meandering through um, the career path to kind of get me to this point. Okay, so in a previous episode, I, I had Terry Terry Scanlon, our legislative liaison, and I interviewed him about the legislative process. I don't want to leave out this very important aspect of the work the data unit also does. Can you talk about how you support the legislative process? Absolutely, yeah. It's a huge piece of what we do, um, and it kind of takes over the whole show uh, when the session is is going on. So um, myself and my team are responsible for um, kind of drafting up responses for how different pieces of legislation might impact the trial courts. And we are really kind of just the translators of this. So we have um, volunteer judicial officers um, as well as we work with the clerk of courts. They have a um, clerk's advisory committee specifically designated for legislation review. And so we work really closely with those two groups and kind of share legislation as as it's coming in um, and get their feedback, get their input, and then try to make sense of that. Um, And it's it's a it may seem tangential, but actually it has a connection to the weighted caseload because some of um, when we suspect that some change might mean that we're going to need more resources, we really do work with our weighted caseload models to get an estimate of that. Um, So they're a critical part of how we can boil down some feedback and really put some hard numbers around it and some hard estimates. So um, it's an important tool in that process as well. Um, But I would say far and away, our experts are kind of what drives that process. And then we just try to pull all that information into something that makes sense, articulate it to the legislative um, analysts and um, work from there. Can you just give a sense of how many bills your team reviewed and how many fiscal notes? Because that's what you do, right? You ultimately put the fiscal note on the bill. Just how many people are on your team and how much work they actually process during that six month period. Yeah, it's pretty. So and it it kind of comes in. um, It's like feast or famine during that period. So they all the notes hit at once and then you have a little like quiet eye of the storm and then they all um, come back down on you. But um, so my team probably from um, early January through the very first week of May will process um, and write notes on, you know, close to 
250, 300 um, pieces of legislation. And um, I have a team myself and then three other um, programs analysts that actually write and analyze the um, the notes that we get come, that come through. Uh, and so and it comes through on any topic. You know, mm-hmm. we see water bills, we see probate bills, we see a lot of criminal justice sentencing. Um, the legislative body reviews a lot more bills than that, but they send anything that might touch the courts our way. And so typically in the last couple of years, we've been averaging um, just over 250 um, bills, which is pretty significant. And that doesn't really count when they come back. So the um, legislature has the option to amend things. And sometimes we get um, upwards of five different amendments. They can strike the language and start all over and kind of have a fresh bill. Um, So these analysts don't just, you know, you know, check the box that they wrote the note for that one bill. It They own it for the whole life of the session, and it can come back in a lot of different iterations. And so it's really a moving target, and they work really, really hard. Okay, so the, the other question I just wanted to kind of reiterate what you said and test if it's accurate. The weighted caseload model is sort of an anchor that you go back to during the legislative session to determine if there's going to be a fiscal impact, that we need more clerks, for example, or we need more dollars. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yep. And it's not. And I think this will be kind of a theme in our conversation is that it's not the whole story, but it is always a piece of it. Um, And it's one kind of information point or data point that we consistently use. And it's also a data point that the legislature understands because we've been using this methodology for several decades. And so um, they're they're familiar with it. They're comfortable with it. And so, yeah, it's it's a part of um, so much of what we do. Is there a particular concrete example in this past legislative session or one of the legislative sessions where you've been the data manager where you can say, on this bill, we went through the process of receiving feedback from our, our experts in the trial courts, taking that information, applying it to the model, coming up with a fiscal note. And can you talk about maybe one area where we were able to get some FTE or some new dollars? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, a couple come to mind. Um, one of the, kind of the big ones uh, that I'm thinking of is the felony DUI legislation that did ultimately pass. It was a couple years ago. Um But what that meant was that we were expecting to see cases that were operating in the county court um, moving to district court. And that kind of, without getting too far in the weeds, does relate back to the way to caseload because um, the resource intensity of of a county court misdemeanor versus a district court felony looks a little different in our modeling. And so um, there was a resource component that that was going to generate because um, in, in just kind of basic human terms, it comes down to there's now a prison sentence attached um, or a potential of a prison sentence attached to this um, crime. And so there's a lot more incentive to fight it, to litigate it further. Um, and so we did have to look at that um, and kind of estimate. We didn't have um, the data to necessarily know how many exactly how many cases were going to be eligible to then migrate over there in future years. So we had to work with other agencies and kind of use their data as a proxy. And then we were able to um, use our models to estimate what would that differential be if they used to behave as a misdemeanor and now they're, these, this amount of cases is going to behave as a felony. 
um, how many more judges and court staff might we need to do that? And so we were successful in getting um, some FTE out of that based on those estimates. Okay. So it sounds like a very collaborative process internally and externally, working with our partners and the legislature and with the goodwill that our models had over the years, or at least the comf they're comfortable with it. It makes your job a little bit easier, but it still sounds like a lot of analysts. A a lot of analysis mm -hmm. is going into these decisions. It sounds really, really time consuming, but just one last thing before we get into the caseload, you often have to make these kinds of decisions with not a lot of time, right? It's not on your time frame. No. <laughs> it's on the legislator's time frame or the legislature's time frame. And as the session goes on and less time is left, you, you have to make these decisions quickly, maybe an hour, maybe even Hey, by noon, if you don't have an answer, we're going to go with our own, right? Yep, absolutely. It's we have no control of the time frame. And I feel like they love to save, you know, 50 page bills, you know, for the end when the um, t turnaround times are are crazy. I mean, some we've had same day um, turnaround. So you you just have to get the best information you can, you know, and that's why it's so critical to have those collaborative partners where you can pick up the phone and call that agency and say, you know, what's your data on this? Because you just don't always have time um, to shoot an email even. And so, yeah, it can move pretty fast and furious, um, but um, that's kind of part of the fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what is the, what is it a weighted caseload study? What is weighted caseload? I think you've given folks an introduction into this in the previous comments, but I want you to kind of start now. What is it? Big picture. Yeah. I mean, so I think the most basic way to understand the weighted caseload is it's just a way of translating um, workload into a statement of resource need. So it's looking at, you know, the work that we do and like, how does that actually translate to the number of people we need to do it? Um, and so that's I mean, at its core, what a weighted caseload model is, um, we get those models through these studies. And so um, we work with a vendor who, um, you know, we go out for bid every time that we do a study. Um, in the past, we've worked with a particular vendor that's um, had a long history of conducting these studies. And um, it, there's a couple different components to it. Um, but I think the important thing before I get into kind of the um, parts of the process is that the weighted caseload methodology is really preferred. And the reason is that it recognizes that different cases require different um, work intensity. And so um, there are states um, in the U.S. that just look at the total number of filings as kind of their metric for need. Um, but what that misses is some of the nuance about, and we even talked about it a little bit with um, the legislative conversation about how different cases require different things of the courts, of the judges, of the staff. And so um, this model allows us to just take a little bit more of a finer slice to that and to say, you know, felonies generally are going to take this amount of time, but we know that, a, um, you know, foreclosures going to need this amount of resource from the court. And so it, get, it lets us speak to that picture in a little bit more detail than if we were to just look at 
total number of filings. And that's a really, I mean, I think if you take one thing away, I hope it's that you take that away, is that it just elevates the conversation a little bit for us to be able to discern some details. Um, And I think that's a real advantage to this model over some of the other ways that people um, might measure need. So some of the people that are listening probably have participated in one of these studies in their career. So they they kind of have an idea of what they do. But could you just describe part of what the staff and the judges are doing when they're part of a study? They're capturing time mm-hmm. based on specific case types and tasks. Absolutely. And then you're putting those numbers up against the number of filings and you're coming up with a weight or a workload value. Is that mm-hmm. what you do? So really the kind of two outcomes of the, the study will be um, an average amount of time a certain case type will take. And then also the number of um, cases of that particular type that one FTE could process in a year if they only did that. Um, so those are kind of the two outputs, their weights and standards. Um, but you know how we built those, and you kind of alluded to it there, was um, we start with a time study. So that is where we, whatever group of individuals we're looking at, whether it's judges or staff, we will ask them to <laughs> do this miserable process of recording their um, day-to-day work. Um, and we work very closely with the committee. We form a, a workload study committee right Right at the front of this and they help the consultants and then our um, SCAO team just kind of get the categories right, make some decisions about how the study is going to flow, the time frames, and they really help us kind of hone in on what do we need to pay attention to, what changes might have occurred between the last study and the current study. And so they kind of help us queue up uh, the time study. But then all of, and we, and we really, some locations will do a sampling where they only ask a certain percentage of um, individuals to, to record their time. Colorado has a tradition of asking everybody in that role to participate. And we have exceptional participation rates. In fact, in the last study we just completed uh, this year, we had 100% participation, which is um, 100%. Unheard of. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so 100% of. Which was this most recent study you're referring to? So this is the county judicial officer. Wow. So, so 100% mm-hmm. of county judicial officers recorded their time for how many, how many months or weeks? So for this one, because uh, they're a little bit unique in that there are there are some county judicial officers that are part-time, um, so they're not a full FTE. And to be sure we got enough data to really speak to their work, we asked those folks to um, participate and record time for eight weeks. Wow. So two months of... Um, the year we had them recording, you know, pretty down to the minute about what they were working on and what case types, uh, categories. And so it's a big lift from the people being studied for sure. They are, that data is um, essential though to the process. And so it really gives us the picture of what is currently happening. But we don't stop there. So that's a really, that's kind of the the foundation. But we also, we don't want to just do these studies and just memorialize what's currently happening. Because I think what we found with this last study too is that, you know, we were hearing from the people doing the work that they were under a big time crunch and that our old model really wasn't reflecting 
all the time pressures and all the pressures of the work that they're experiencing. And so we don't want to just measure what's currently going on. We need to have a conversation about how it needs to look, how it should look. And so that's this next piece, and it's, a, it's called an adequacy of time survey. Okay. And um, we that's where we ask the participants, you know, where do you not have enough time to do the work as you feel it should be done? Um, and that's always kind of a challenging, uncomfortable space I have found for participants because nobody wants to say the work's not getting done in this area or I'm not able to keep up. But it's so essential. And I think we've been pretty fortunate with with participants being honest about the realities of their world and the time pressures of their workloads. And so we get really important information from that survey as well that we pair with the data about how they're spending their time. Is the adequacy of time study a survey, a face-to-face meeting? It's what a is survey. That? It's a yeah, survey. It's a so survey and it's done electronically. Okay. Um, and so we typically leave it open for about two weeks and we try to do it right on the heels of that time study. So it's all fresh to them. Like they've just been recording their time. They have been really like thoughtful about the workload in, in the preceding weeks and or months. And then we ask them some questions about, you know, where do you need more time? Where do you have plenty of time? And so um, we leave it open for about two weeks um, and then we're able to to get a good survey response to pair with just the, the raw time data. Okay, so there's this there's the time study where they enter their time for up to eight weeks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Adequacy time study, which is a survey to get some of the stuff that the time cannot capture. Mm-hmm. And so now I just, there's probably another step to this. There I'm sure is. Okay. It's All like right. you queued it up. Okay. So the next step, what the, what we do from there to kind of get us to those final numbers of average minutes per case would be committee review. So we bring that same committee that helped us make some initial decisions back together. We get the band back together and we meet We try to be really generous with how many meetings we plan. And at least in the past two studies that I've been part of, we always need more. (laughs) So, you know, we will set a number of meetings with them and we just review all of the information we talk about. And we talk about what questions they have. We talk about what changes we're seeing from maybe the last model to this model based on the time data, based on that qualitative information we got from the adequacy of time survey. And so they just take a a good, thorough look at everything Mm -hmm. and then work to really finalize the numbers. Um, They make adjustments where they need to make adjustments, where maybe something in the adequacy of time survey was consistently saying, we don't have enough time in this area. And then they talk about, well, what adjustment makes sense? You know, how much time would need to be added to make that feasible? For as much of it being um, a data-driven process, there's a lot of art to it too. And that's really where that art comes in is working with those experts. And that's why it's so important that we have them. Because me, in my role, um, I don't have the information I would need to to really be able to explain differences or make meaningful adjustments that are going to get those roles the time they need to do the work the way they need to do it. And so that expertise is invaluable. And so that's, we work with them to kind of get all of, you know, I've heard a colleague say it's kind of where the sausage is made. Like we get it all 
packaged up. Um, and then we make a final recommendation to um, the court services standing committee. And um, we review the study, we review kind of the process with them. So they um, are following, you know, how we got to this end point. And then they um, go on to recommend it to the chief justice uh, for approval. Um, and they have the option to make some adjustments as well. But that's kind of the the process of a study. Okay. And everybody uh, outside of the vendor, everybody involved in this are people from within the judicial branch. And part of what I'm hearing you say is the art of it is really bringing in that day-to-day experience that the experts have, comparing it to the data, the numbers, the time. And then can you just help me understand, is there an art to also understanding the bigger political environment that we're working within? Because Ultimately, these are numbers that we are going to, before the chief justice approves them, once they're approved, that's our sort of standard that we're going to go to the legislature with. So how do you factor that in? Because that seems to me to be like a, that really seems to be an art too. How do you balance all of that information? Yeah, I think that really, you know, we we kind of let the, the data show up the way that it needs to. And, you know, we're fortunate to... Every committee that I've served on has just the highest level of integrity. So I've never seen any um, indication of of inflating numbers or anything like that. But I think there's just that important context to keep in mind. And so that is a thread through all of the committee discussions. And I think that's kind of where our team um, supervisor, uh, the director of court services, is really involved. He's done weighted caseload studies. He's really great about just articulating that context keeping it in everybody's minds so that we reach a place that's defensible and reasonable, but also gets the courts the resources they need. Okay. Are there any frequently asked questions that you receive that you just might want to go over in this podcast so people that are listening can can maybe get some of these questions Cannot answered? ask but, me the question. Well, yeah, maybe they don't have to email someone <laughs> no. in your unit or you, but... Yeah, are there any frequently asked questions that you feel like are really important and worth mentioning? There's a couple, maybe not questions, but just like important things to understand that I've, I've found people maybe wrestle with when trying to understand the way to caseload study. One of the big ones is what gets counted, you know, is post-decree work in the model or is X in the model? And so, so I, I sometimes, I think in some conversations with different customer groups, there's a, there's a real concern or fear that something wasn't counted. And so what we kind of go back to is that everything's counted. And that's one of the, the like fundamental instructions that we give participants is that if it is related to your work, track it. So in that time study piece, we ask them to record everything. We don't want to lose a minute so it's not like just record up until 5 p.m. and then don't count all the orders you were signing until 7 p.m. We tell them no matter when you work on it, no matter what particular category it's in, you count it. Um, and so uh, my response to that is that if it occurred in the time study, we absolutely have it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, anomalous or just kind of outlier events that happen. And so those, those may not always be in there, but, um, the other thing to know about the models is that they're designed to last for a series of years. And so we wouldn't necessarily want a lot of one-offs to be part of our model. 
um, because those things are not predictable um, parts of the work. So we want it to really speak to the core body of the work. It may not always get those really exceptional things that come up for courts. And so that's just kind of a balance we have to strike. Another thing I would say, and it kind of goes back to a little bit of our conversation earlier, is that I think people really like numbers and they're really hungry for data and something concrete because it's this tangible number. But what I have to do a lot of um, coaching and have a lot of conversations about is just, you know, where the model serves you best. And so the model is really designed to to give a statewide picture. Um, It's really a tool to talk about the state as a whole. And the smaller you try to boil it down and use it, just the less it's able to really capture all the nuances of a local uh, local environment or local picture. And so I know that people like the cleanness of having a need number um, or just this concrete number. But I really encourage people to just keep in mind that it's, it's one element of the story. Okay. Um, and so it's not designed to be used at a local level. Okay. Um, for assessment of need. It can absolutely be something you look at, yeah. but you should be having conversations about how the work looks. This is one landscape. of many indicators, absolutely. is what I'm hearing you say. It's an important indicator, and it might get you on the right path, mm-hmm. but it's not a straight line between this number, my district, and a need. Um, okay. Yeah, and I mean, we do, so we, and that can be confusing for people too, because we do we use the model and then we reflect the need for each district um and for county court officers we even have the part-time county judges where we use the model to kind of provide estimates for their their work um fte level and so um, i understand the confusion around that but i think that's just something to always keep in mind is where is it serving you best the the bigger the more scale you go up is when this model kicks butt and then the smaller you go you just have to proceed with caution and you have to make sure you're putting in all of that other all the other puzzle pieces to your story that's the art of it right i mean Absolutely. it's not a formula it's not like uh calculating gravity or something to that right. but where there's a formula there's a law of gravity it works every time the yep. same exact way it's more of the art but it enhances our ability mm-hmm. it it reality reality tests maybe what we're feeling sure. and like you said then a committee gets together and maybe the numbers too low or too high but they can kind of gauge based on their own experiences you're taking a sample of people from around the state, so you're getting the flavor from all around the state. You're trying to factor that into a number that is realistic and defensible. Yep, absolutely. And we're Got not it. defending it just to make it clear. We're not defending it like we might in a court case, right? This is right. <laughs> this is not this is not um, something that we defend to that extent. But it's something that people have to have confidence in who make decisions with it, and that those people often ultimately are the legislature. Yep, and they I think we already have. Like I said, we have use these models um, and this methodology for decades. And so uh, they have a high level of trust in the methodology, and they should. It's, a, it's I think it's a, a good methodology, like I said. So it's really just about maintaining that credibility and trust with them. And so, um, yeah, it was just a balance that we strike. Okay. We talked a lot about how you have to collaborate. You and your team have to collaborate with many people. I just wonder if there's just a story you want to share about how it maybe made your job easier, this collaborative process. It sounds like, in in reality, it provides a lot more information to analyze, which probably doesn't 
make it easier to process all of it, but I bet you probably get some key pieces of information that maybe makes finding an answer easier. I don't know, but yeah. do you have an example that you'd like to share? You know, it might just be because this project was is so um, present in my mind because we just were wrapping it up. But, you know, when I um, thought about that or as I think about that, um, the county judge uh, study that we just completed, the workload study um, committee that we worked with, um, in my mind is a, a great example of a really effective, helpful collaboration. And, you know, because we, we do obviously pull a lot of the people that do the work we're studying. So we had a lot of county judicial officers on that committee, but we also have some district judicial officers. We have some court executives. We have um, some clerks of court. Um, so we try to have a, a balanced representation, um, but a, definitely an emphasis on the position we're looking at most closely. So working with them and, you know, without going too much again into the weeds, but we had some struggles with our consultant um, and some of the materials they were putting together for the committee. And the committee just didn't miss a beat. And they had to come back to the information a couple times. And sometimes the information wasn't matching their expertise on the matter. And watching them reckon with that and then kind of where we ended up was that you know, once we got the, the materials fixed, it, it aligned almost perfectly with their expertise. And so it was, but you know, they, they stayed on the journey. They didn't get frustrated by those things, not aligning. They stayed curious. Um, they stayed engaged. They gave so much of their time and they're all very busy people. And so to me, that just made all the difference. And it made this study that maybe could have gone a different direction with those challenges work out really well because they were just so committed. Um, and so to me, that kind of stands out as just like a, a recent example of like, I have a lot of gratitude to that committee because they made my job, not just because they made my job easier in some, in light of some challenges, but just the dedication to the work and to their peers, I thought was really remarkable. The process worked, even in the face of some really tough moments where the data just didn't make sense and people were having a hard time. I find it really interesting. I've been part of one of these before, but I find it very interesting how when you do see the data and the expertise kind of come together and match, that's a really interesting phenomenon. But does that always happen in the way to caseload study or in every aspect of it? Not every aspect of it. I think it happens a lot because... You know, I think there's some real truth to people's experience that then gets borne out in data when you measure it. But um, sometimes things surprise you. And I think that's kind of a fun moment for me is how do people make sense of that um, and how do they work through that? And, and not just individually, but, you know, as a collective, yeah. like how do they reckon with things that maybe don't fit cleanly? And, you know, how do they move forward and, and still come out with a great, reliable product with integrity? Um, but, you know, those little surprise moments are um, not always fun, but I think that they're um, a neat part of the work. OK, so what are your top three takeaways for taking action for this episode of Beyond the Collab Babble? OK, so I would say um, 
you definitely want to identify your people. Like, so I've talked about the importance of the expertise of the committees and um, having the people in other agencies I could reach out to if I had a, a tough issue on fiscal notes and a tight deadline. And I think the more you can build um, a stable is maybe not the right word um, to compare people to horses, but um, you know, the more you can build up this um, foundation of people that have knowledge that goes maybe beyond your own and you know who to ask. I think that's so important um, to know what you don't know and to, to really intentionally seek out people that can fill in those gaps. And I will say I'm more introverted. So that's not a super comfortable place for me to be, you know, networking um, in that way per se. But I think it's so important. And I think that the quality of the work itself, the collaborations is just so well served by that. It's worth the stretch. Okay. So that would be one. Um, the other one is to be curious. Um, so to not just have like, this is our hypothesis. This is what we're testing. But, you know, to stay, to stay open and curious about, you know, well, why would, why would it look that way? Um, let's unpack that. Let's talk about it. And so really giving that curiosity a part in the process, um, I think is important because I think a lot of times we just come to the table with an answer in mind. And, um, that's a little short-sighted because some of the best stuff comes out of these unexpected avenues that, um, play themselves out. And it kind of, the third one I would say that kind of connects to that is to stay open. Um, so things go left on you or not be what you expected, but you can still get there. And often I think you get there in the, in the best way possible. Maybe it feels a little worse for the wear, but I think you end up in a better place. And so I think just being really open to a messy process or some discomfort or some confusion is really important in collaborative efforts because, my two cents is that they're they're not always really clean and linear yeah. and I would love it if they were because I'm a data person and right. I would like that cleanness yeah. but um but I have learned the benefit of that kind of unorthodox process and I've I've seen it work time and again to really serve the work in such a um more elevated way okay now to help the audience get to know Jessica Brill just a little bit more I like to ask a few questions. So what surprised you the most about today's podcast? I don't know that I have like a really good answer. What surprised me most? Um, Just that it is pretty easy to talk about um, the work. I mean, reflecting back on it and um, sometimes there we talked about how it can be challenging to move past kind of all the technical speak and just have a conversation about something. And so that is something I am am intentional about and do sometimes uh, worry about is just if I'm making sense to people. And so hopefully this made sense, but uh, I feel like that was, you know, it was surprisingly comfortable, Bill. (laughs) Okay. What's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? So I would have to say Estes Park. I got married there. It's just like a beautiful, um, I think, classic Colorado town. That to me has just got a little corner of my heart. Sure. I mean, if you got married there, you're going to always have right? a special yeah. place. <laughs> a good Park. excuse to go back. Yeah. many ex- A good excuse to at least go back once a year. Every huh? year. <laughs> Where's somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day? Lots of places. 
but I would, so top of my list is definitely Ireland and Scotland. So I would just love to see um, those countries. And um, I've just heard such great things about the people there and they don't have bad beer either. So yeah. that helps. <laughs> yeah. Test it up against That's the right. Colorado beer. That's right. right. <laughs> What's your perfect meal? Um, this may be influenced by the fact that I have a head cold, but I would die for a, a great bowl of pho. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Great bowl of pho. Yeah. That's one of my favorites as well. And then lastly, what is something you believed for a long time and later found to be untrue? Yeah, this might be a little bit like lofty, but I, you know, I think I was really believing before I started working with the criminal justice system, I believed kind of the Matlock, Perry Mason, you know, like dramatic demonstrations of how justice is served. And I think I don't know that that's not untrue, but as I've gotten exposed to the criminal justice system more, I feel I've just because I think I've grown an appreciation for all the ways that kind of justice is infused through the process and like all the ways people are served without these dramatic um, courtroom um, cross examinations. And so um, just maybe what how much more nuanced of a concept justice and like the work of the courts is that it's not as much as those are great um, for Hollywood and, and good entertainment that the process is a lot um, different than that. And it's a good thing, but. It just surprised me when my naive self kind of first encountered criminal justice, I would say. Jessica, I just want to say thank you for appearing on today's podcast. I also would like to say thank you for the work you and your team do to help the branch get its message to the legislature through weighted caseload and other um, data processes that help us get the resources we need to bring justice to people throughout the state. So thank you. Thanks so much, Bill. It's fun. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Battle. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. 